want to say again a welcome to you, and uh, thank you for braving the blizzards this morning to be here. It's good to gather in Christ's name, isn't it, and to worship the Lord together. I want to take you back into Luke chapter 15 for the last time today. Um, I want to look once more at the story of the prodigal son and to take it from one final angle. Let me read to you the passage, the story, and then we'll get right to work. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. If you have a Bible, do open it. The text of the passage is below the video. If you're watching online, you can scroll down and find the text there. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and again and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate And be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Who did Jesus tell this story for? Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the answers to that question. And we recognize that on the one hand, there is no question that he told it to imprint upon our minds the love of God. So that if you're ever wandering and lost, you'll feel the Father's welcome to come home. And we looked at this story, we considered 
the place of that prodigal, how he reaches the very bottom, how he reaches that place of tragic brokenness that so many of us could identify with when we found ourselves in the pit of despair, the miry clay, the place where you are aware of your sinfulness and of your need for God, and the love of God that is just lavished upon him. Jesus told this story for you. He told it for you to bring you in from the cold and in from the dark place. And it may be the case that some of you have been wondering and your faith has gone astray or maybe you've never come to know God. Jesus told this story for you that you would understand the wretchedness of what sin does to you, how it is self-destructive, how it rips your life apart, how it destroys you and how ultimately you need to find a way home to the heart of God and how he's provided that forgiveness for you in the Son and the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus also told this story not just for the people who wander and have gone astray. He also told the story for those who are committed to God. In fact, arguably, it was the main reason why he told the story. That as it were, we could have a look, a window into the grace of God and how it functions and works and understand his grace in such a way that it will refresh and revive and rejuvenate our faith and also prevent a type of spiritual sickness from setting in that destroys us. Now, why is Jesus particularly interested in here? He's interested in the kind of rot that can set him into the heart of the believer, the person who is committed to God, and destroy you from the inside out. You can think of it like if you were to go into the country and find an old period house, one of those old timber frame properties. It could look beautiful from the outside, spotlessly clean, perhaps freshly painted if it's one of those old Tudor structures. But maybe a surveyor would go in and discover that inside the timbers are rotten or they have, they're full of woodworm and that the whole thing is decayed and liable to collapse within moments. Or like a car, if you go to one of these um, garages that sells these beautiful old classic cars, a, a classic car can look perfect and spotless on the outside. It's had the bodywork done, the panels have been uh, rubbed down and then resprayed, and it looks perfect. But underneath, the, the chassis, the structure of the car could be rusted through. Or you've ever had this experience of going into the fridge and pulling out a bottle of fresh, what looks like fresh milk, maybe Jersey milk, you know, the, the 5% fat, the best stuff, you know. You pull it, pour it into a glass, take a swig, only to discover that it's turned sour. All these images are, in a sense, what I'm trying to put across to you is the fact that so often, the problem is more acute for the believer in some ways than for the unbeliever because the believer doesn't know that there's a sickness at the core. That the outside of your life might look right and your faith may be pristine into all appearances, but in the center there could be a sickness and a rot that sets in. And Jesus was very interested in this, not least because of the way that we can deceive ourselves with regard to our own faith and think that we're well if we're not. Think that we're fine if we're not. And so this story is particularly potent because it's one of those moments in the Gospels where you capture this double emphasis of the teaching and the life of Jesus. That on the one hand, he is passionately about his mission to rescue broken sinners. People who have found themselves totally destroyed and ruined by their own life and the things you've done, the things you've, you've experienced, things done to you as well as the things that you have personally committed you see this, this younger son just utterly destroyed by his own waywardness. Jesus wants to reach to the, the sinner and bring you back home. But he is also there to bring... Really, Jesus was about a demolition job. 
that as he went about his mission of loving people like us, broken people like us, he was also interested in demolishing the structures of religion, which actually become a hindrance to you knowing God and others knowing God. In some ways, that aspect of his ministry is even more prominent. And the answer that you see in the teaching of the life of Jesus is grace, grace, grace to both of those situations. The unmerited generosity and love of God to the sinner and to the religious person. Now, why is this so vital for us? Listen, as a church, one of my, one of my main passions as a pastor wanting to bring leadership to this particular congregation is that we would raise up wholehearted disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't see any point in half-heartedness. I don't see any point in being um, a church that's, that's kind of polite and nice but doesn't have any edge to us, doesn't have any fire, doesn't have any kind of salty bite to our faith and love for the Lord that makes an impact on the world and that we stir one another up. We want to raise up wholehearted disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is at the heart of our vision as a church. But in a sense, in in some ways, that exposes us to the danger here even more acutely. It it seems to me to be a pan, doesn't it? That the people who most want to strive after the things of God are those who are most in danger here of the corruptions that can come into your faith. Just use an analogy. It's an imperfect one, but I've met... um, the guys in my, in, in my friendship circles, and, and particularly when I spent some time in one of the gyms near our house, these guys were fanatics about fitness and had been, some of them were professional sportsmen. But one of the ironies of giving themselves so, so zealously to that course of life is that some of these guys had ruined their bodies. They had joints that didn't work anymore. And um, pain, the chronic pain and inability to do the things they were once able to do. And this can be one of the, the kind of ironic fallouts, can't it, of people who are zealously committed to the pursuit of fitness, that they actually destroy their bodies through bad nutrition or through, um, through uh, just overtraining and all the rest of it. And it's an imperfect example, but I think what I'm trying to put across to you is the fact that in some ways this can be true within the lives of spiritual people, those who seem to be most zealous, those most passionate, those most committed, sometimes are those who have actually allowed a corruption or destruction to set in right at the heart of their faith. And of course, the problem isn't the zeal. Jesus is very clear about this. He wants people who love the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't know that there's any other way of living the Christian life to bring pleasure to the Father than with utter, passionate zeal for his glory. The problem isn't the zeal. The problem is that it can be so easily misguided and misdirected and become something actually that is dangerous and wrong. And so Jesus wanted, he constantly was about correcting this problem. And just in in case you think that this is something that was one and done, when you read the pages of the New Testament, when you read the, the letters to the churches, you realize that this corruption keeps setting in. It keeps, this is the problem which Christians keep tripping back into. This, this inability to understand and to hold on to and to be bathed in and to, to let the grace of God be central to the way that we live the Christian life. We must never be complacent. As a church, as a congregation, but also as individuals, 
wanting to live for the glory of God, wanting to pursue him. I know that some of you are not Christian. You're on a spiritual journey. I think one of the most appealing things about the Lord Jesus Christ will be your discovery that he is not interested in the ugliness that religion so often turns into, that he was zealously passionate to destroy it. If anything, he gave the most stinging rebukes. You know, back in probably 15 or so years ago when the new atheists were just sort of bursting onto the scene, they were writing books with titles like God is not great. But the aim of demolishing religion, thinking religion is the sickness, religion is the problem this world is most um, suffering with. Of course, what they seemed to be ignorant of was that Jesus agreed with them. He was saying this stuff 2,000 years ago, but with more acute and precise diagnosis and challenge. Now, this is what we're interested in. How would you know then if your zeal was somehow misguided? If you, like this older brother, and we're looking particularly at the older brother in this story, who represents for us the way that faith can go wrong. How would you know that your, your faith has become corrupted? And really, I want our focus to be on just two verses here, where really the brother gives testament to his own bad spiritual condition. It's in verse 29 and verse 30, where he's, he's just heard about his younger brother having come home and the feast that's happening in the house, and he's still working in the fields. And he says, look, these many years I've served you. And I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now here, what we see are these uh, a few signs of the ways in which your faith can just slowly corrupt, essentially. Where this kind of spiritual sickness can set in. Let me show you what they are. The first is a kind of pride in yourself. You see, the first words that come out of the older brother's mouth are a kind of recitation of his record. He points to years served. He says, look, these many years I've served you. And he points to his record of obedience. He says, I've never disobeyed your command. Of course, we find that doubtful, don't we? But he believes it. That's the important point. And he believes it so much that he even allows it to inform his sense of himself to such a degree that he feels better than his younger brother. And it seems justified on the surface, doesn't it? Seems like he's been the good son. He's the good one. He's the one that the father should be pleased with. Now, this is a problem that we all are prone to. Why is that? Because of the simple reality that as humans, we have an inbuilt, natural tendency to compare ourselves with others, and particularly to compare ourselves to others in such a way that makes us feel better about ourselves. You think about some of you weekend warriors, love to get involved in sports at the weekend, and you can begin to believe delusions about your brilliance, especially if you only play with guys who are more overweight and unfit than you. You can begin to think that maybe you're bordering on the level of elitism, which the government says you're, you're permitted to play sports, the elite can play, and that's you. Why do you believe this narrative? Well, because you only ever compare with people who are worse than you. Well, think about the bride who's readying herself for that wedding day, and she's been fantasizing about that moment when she'll irradiate glory and beauty as she walks down the aisle, and everyone will hold their breath in wonder. And in order to make that moment just perfect, she has to choose those bridesmaids very carefully. (laughs) 
She has to find her three or four plainest friends to make sure that they don't outshine her on that day. And then dress them in peach just to make extra sure. <laughs> you think how we have this human tendency, don't we, to want to, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves by examining ourselves in the light of others around us who maybe we see as doing worse than us. And this is true. This is emphatically true when it comes to spiritual realities. How corrupted our hearts are that we measure ourselves horizontally against others, don't we? Instead of regarding the holiness of God. And Jesus was constantly wanting to upend this false way of thinking about yourself. Sometimes he did it by showing that it's just a delusion. You know, you're not as great as you think you are. If you really could see yourself as God sees you, you'd know otherwise. Sometimes in some of his teachings, he exposes it as a form of hypocrisy. He says, look, yes, things might look great in terms of your outer performance, but look at the corruption that's in the heart. Look at the desires. Look at the ambitions and the motivations and the ways and the lusts and the desires which you aren't really seemingly in control of, which actually show that there's a rottenness at the core of you. Sometimes he shows that it's just a type of ignorance. Ignorance about the holiness of God. If you saw him as he is, like Isaiah, you'd fall on your face like when he encountered God in the temple and you'd say, woe is me. But for as long as you're ignorant of the power and transcendent holiness of God, you think, I'm fantastic. I'm doing great. But what Jesus does here is something slightly different in this story. He doesn't particularly take it in any of those directions. What he does here to expose the pride of this older brother's heart is he shows how tragic it is that he's missed the point entirely. And you see it in the way the father answers his son. He says, son, his first words are, son, you are always with me. What is the father doing there? He's showing this older boy that somehow the thing which ought to be of supreme worth to him, the love and intimacy that he enjoys with his father, has been supplanted by this sense of duty and what you can think of as a kind of transactional relationship. If I put in my work and effort and dues, Out of that, I will reap a blessing. What I really want are the gifts the father will ultimately give me, the inheritance that is mine. And the son, the older son in that sense, was no different from his younger brother. The only difference was he had kind of a deferred gratification thing going on where he was willing to wait until his father actually died before he got his inheritance. But either way, the, the desires were the same. I just want your blessings. I just want your wealth. And the father so gently shows how the relationship has become transactional. He's missed out on the heart of what it was really about, which was this love, this intimacy that he was to enjoy with the father, that that was the end in itself. And this is the same for the the believer. What has God saved you for? There's no doubt in my mind that he wants to do you good, that God loves to bless his children. But if you ask the question, what did he save you for? Quite apart from all the goodness that he wants to lavish upon us, the reason for which he saved us is that we might be with him. Son, you are always with me. Be wary of this kind of pride that really reveals a kind of transactional reality to your spiritual walk. The second thing that we see here in the story 
is a grumbling towards God. He has this pride in himself, but then he has this grumbling towards the Father, which is symbolic of our grumbling towards God. Now, here's how this comes out. Just after he's, he's recited his record as the perfect son, these many years have I served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Then he says, yet you never gave me a young goat. In other words, just one of the cheapest feast options as opposed to the fattened calf that I might celebrate with my friends. He feels obviously that he's earned a blessing. He feels that he's earned a reward from his father. And he also feels a kind of sense of injustice, doesn't he? A sense of anger that the younger son is getting this lavish feast in his honor. And the older brothers, he, he said, like, when, when did I last have a party like this? Now this is, this is without a doubt a sure sign of rot that can set in with faith. We, we begin our Christian walk. We begin our experience of the love of God with nothing but an overwhelming sense of gratitude and wonder at the fact that he's brought us into his family. Anyone who's truly come to know God, that will be the dominant experience of what it's like when you first put your faith in Jesus. You can't believe that he would welcome you. But it can so easily turn. Particularly if, like this older brother, you've got some years under your belt and some record of having, you know, served God. At some point, it can turn into a sense of, hang on, there's a number of things which I wanted God to do for me by this point that he hasn't done. Be it material blessings, be it spiritual stature in the church, be it whatever it is, that a kind of grievance begins to be nurtured in your heart. God, how come you haven't done me more good in this life? The prime example for this in the Bible, which is written down for our instruction, Paul says, as a warning to us, is the story of the nation of Israel. Jeremy began the book of Exodus last week in that first chapter by unfolding something of the story of the rescue of that nation, that great nation. How it began with them in the place of slavery under the Egyptians. How God came in as a mighty saviour showed his strong arm against the Egyptians by exposing them to the various plagues and ultimately rescuing them. But what you see, of course, is if you know the story, that they come out from slavery in Egypt and then they're a free people. But their freedom, first of all, leads them into a place of wandering. They just wander around a desert for 40 years before they can get to their destination, which is the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And I think that there is no question in my mind that in terms of the biblical storyline, this is written down for instruction because it's a picture of the Christian life. You live between two two worlds, in a sense. You're saved out of Egypt. You're saved out of that place of slavery where you were a slave to your own sins and you, you experience the wretchedness that comes on account of the things that you did and that were done to you that caused you this self-destruction. You understand that. You can look back and think, man, I, I, there but for the grace of God go I. Thank you, God, for saving me. But you're not yet there. You're not quite in the land that's promised in the sense that we live between two worlds. We're longing for the future promises of God in which there will be, every tear will be wiped away, in which we'll experience the unhindered access to the, the presence of God without any, any sense of distance or, and all the joys of heaven, right? Now, what do they do, the Israelites, when they're in that in-between phase, which is, pictures us as Christians and where we're at? Very quickly, very quickly, 
they began to forget. They forgot the brutal realities of their life as it was in slavery. They suffer a kind of recall bias where your memories are slightly twisted and filtered. And then they start to grumble because all they can see is the the things that God hasn't done for them. One of the particular gripes they have is that God is providing food every day in the form of manna, but you know, it's not quite as exciting as the food we had back in Egypt. There's this really tragic moment. It's, it's humorously tragic, but it's tragic nonetheless. When they say, they say, oh, that we had meat to eat. They're in the desert. They're eating manna. And so we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. It cost nothing because they had no money. They were slaves. They had to go and fish for themselves in the, in the Nile, didn't they? And they said the cucumbers. I've never craved a cucumber in my life, so I'm not quite sure why they're so fixated on cucumbers. But anyway, the cucumbers, the melons, it's the wateriest and flavorless, most flavorless of all fruits. But then it gets more, you can identify more with this, they say the leeks, mm, I like leeks actually, the onions and the garlic. You know, if, you could, if you took all those elements out of food, yeah, it would be a bit bland, wouldn't it? And they begin to think, and really what's going on here is the same thing that goes on in the heart of any believer. You've been walking with God for a little while, and you forget the wretchedness that you felt before you knew Jesus. And all you can start to think of is the pleasures that you enjoyed. It's not leeks and onions and garlic, but it's, it's the stuff that you know you can't do. It displeases God. And then you think about all the things that you feel God's withheld from you. You know, I, I, I've been a good Christian. I should have had this, that, and the other. And then this corruption begins to set in. Now, for the older brother, just as it is for us, this, any kind of grumble against God is, is magnified and aggravated by any envy that you then nurture. If you look at others and see that other people are having the blessings which you want from God, and others are having, you can't see any rationale or reason or justice to the situation. This is what the brother's feeling. It's like there's a feast for my younger brother, the absolute waster. And meanwhile, me, poor me. It's a bit, you know, we, we as humans, we have this a passionate, inbuilt sense of justice, don't we? And we can easily allow that to nurture envy in our hearts. Been working for a company for any length of time, you might have fought for certain benefits. But if somebody new comes in and gets the same perks that you've been fighting for for years, what do you feel? You feel a sense of injustice. It makes no sense. It doesn't hurt you at all that they're getting what you have fought for. But you feel it nonetheless. Or you go out for dinner with some friends and, you know, there's always that friend, isn't there, who sits down at the meal and orders the most expensive cocktail or the, the, the expensive bottle of wine and then consumes most of it themselves. And then they want to go Dutch at the end of the meal and share the bill equally. And you've been drinking tap water the whole time. You feel a sense of injustice. It bubbles up and boils from inside you, doesn't it? Even though you can't say anything because that would make you look like an idiot. But you, you swallow it, right? Well, the sibling, you know, this is the situation that this guy was in. The younger sibling, he's gotten themselves into debt umpteen times and daddy's bailed them out. You think it's not fair. Why don't 
you know, they should learn the lesson of their ways. This is our hearts, friends. It's not, a, it's not a pretty thing to look at, is it? It's ugly. But this is what Jesus was portraying here when he told the story about the older brother. He's saying, listen, what does the father do? What's the, what's the root problem here? It's an inability to understand the grace of God. A grace mentality in which you recognize that everything you have from God is a gift. Everything is gift. That's what grace means. A grace mentality is that I deserve nothing. I've received everything. And the rest of my life is a song of gratitude to God. But the law, the works, the merit mentality, the mentality of this older brother is, I received a lot of good things, yes, for which I'm thankful, but there's a bunch of things that I want which I have not had. I've worked for more. Where's my due? Let me give you a bit of an analogy here just so you can picture the two, the two mentalities side by side. Think about how romantic love in a marriage can go wrong. Some husbands... Wake up every day and feel an overwhelming sense of gratitude that this goddess married a slob like me. I was never worthy. You're getting an insight here. I was never worthy. And yet she deigned to say yes. Of course, you must never worship your wife. But you can see what I'm saying, right? The, the idea that love is... Love is unbreakable when you feel a constant sense of thankfulness to, that, that she ever said yes to you. But you know how easily romantic love can, can twist and corrupt? How easily that narrative can turn in the lives of some people where maybe your husband says, you know, she's not, she's not making the effort she used to make or, you know, she doesn't give me the attention that I, I, I feel I need. Maybe a colleague does. You can think of any number of faults that's crept in there. Now, which, which marriage is the healthy one? And there's a picture here of what it's like to be a believer, to walk with God. The Christian is someone who, whose dominant sense is that they have received nothing but the gift of God. The unmerited favor of God. Everything good that you enjoy in life is his unmerited love toward you. And you cannot complain. You can't complain even about the things that he's withheld from you. Because you des- you've, you've received more than you ever deserved. And to nurture any different way of thinking is, is to nurture a sense of entitlement that reveals that you never understood grace in the first place. How does the father set his boy straight here? He does it with so much gentleness. This is how the father deals with us. He says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. He's telling him partly that you have, you know, you're grumbling about all things you don't have. You have the thing which is of infinite worth, which is my love and the security of being in my home. But more than that, I have everything here is yours. And none of it you earned. It was all my work, my hard work, the father's saying. 
And this is the Christian life. You step into an inheritance as a Christian that you did not lift a finger to work towards. It is the inheritance of our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who earned a perfect reward from the Father. And then who makes us, the Bible says, his co-heirs with him. So that you become a recipient of all the love and lavish favor that the Father feels towards his Son, the perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of it becomes yours. And to let that sink into your heart is to become aware of the grace of God. God wants to uproot that grumbling spirit. He doesn't want you to be a believer who nurtures that sense of injustice or envy or frustration at what God hasn't done or hasn't given you. Let it be a warning. Perhaps that's not you yet, but it may yet be you in the future when you pass through suffering, when you feel loss. The defining mark of the person who knows grace is gratitude. Let me show you one last thing then about this older brother. We talked about his pride in himself and his grumbling towards his father. There's also then a judgment towards others. This is one of the final symptoms of when the religious spirit kind of corrupts, when it goes rotten, what Jesus wanted to deal with. In many ways, this is the saddest part of the story. Is this big brother, his younger brothers come home, emaciated, in rags, and he seems to lack compassion. He has not even a flicker of happiness and love for the fact that his younger brother has come home. In fact, what he rather has is anger. You see how he's so petulant. He says he was angry and refused to go in. You ever done that? It's kind of that passive-aggressive mode where you stand outside and think, well, I'll show them. And then he voices his complaint to the father. But it really gets to its darkest moment when he says this to his dad. He says, but when this son of yours came... What he's doing there is he's distancing himself from that younger brother, putting himself in a different category, even in a different family, it would seem. He doesn't describe him as my brother. He describes him as this son of yours. It's like he's disowned him. Now, this can creep in so easily, friends. It can take the form of a kind of hot judgment when you feel angry, frustrated, dark bitterness towards another person, particularly a brother or sister in Christ. It can also take the form of a kind of cold judgment, that distance, that coolness, that cold shoulder. Whatever form it takes, the question is you need to ask yourself is, are you you angry with anyone? Are you looking down on others? Is there someone in your life who you feel that kind of frustration with? Once more, friends, this reveals this inadequate doctrine of the grace of God. Because when you know what God has saved you from, what does it produce in you? It produces a profound sense of humility. One of the most touching and precious moments in Scripture is when Paul describes his own spiritual reality as someone who used to be a blasphemer, and a persecutor of Christians. He was hounding the Christians. He was dragging them into the religious courts to be punished 
because he, he hated this, this, what he thought of as a new religion. He wanted the purity of Judaism. And so he killed the Christians. That was his aim in life. And what does he say? Reflecting years later, after a change of heart, after he himself became a follower of Jesus, after he gave his life to, to pursue the glory of Christ by preaching the gospel in the world, suffering on behalf of Christ, pursuing holiness, living a godly life. What does he say of himself when he's an old man? He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He said, I'm the worst that ever lived. He says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect Patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I don't think that Paul was posturing here. I don't think that he was wearing a false humility like we so easily can. We say, woe is me, I'm just a sinner. What he's really doing, he's speaking from his gut level conviction about the mercy of Christ lavished upon him. He says, I was the worst sinner of all. The amazing thing is that that sense hasn't diminished as he's gotten older, and it shouldn't diminish in the life of the Christian. If you've been saved two years, five years, ten years, twenty years, that sense of the unworthiness of the gift you've received should not diminish, but should rather grow. Your humility deepens the, the longer you walk with Christ. You understand the subtleties of your own heart, of your sinful tendencies, of your waywardness. You understand the, the extraordinary reality of his glory and his righteousness and his, his, his love for you. And it drives you deeper into humility. This is the Christian. And then where, where are you when you're in that place of humility? The fact is you can't judge. You can't hold an anger and bitter spirit against another person. Because you know that you are a trophy of the grace of God yourself. You didn't contribute to this salvation. It wasn't you. It was the love of God. How does the father want, what does he want for this oldest brother? What he wants is to restore this brother to the emotions of grace. He says to him, not only does he say, you're always with me and all that's mine is yours. He then says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What the father has shown us all through this story. Is that there are certain emotions that are appropriate with grace. One is the deep sense of compassion that we, we saw in him when his son returned. The, lo- the compassion for the brokenness that sin brings into the lives of others. You can't feel angry with others in their sin and their mess and their confusion and all the, the rest of it. You feel this gut level like Christ did, this bowels of compassion. And then there's this note of joy, of celebration, of absolute ecstatic happiness when people come to a place of repentance and forgiveness and knowing the love of God in their lives. This, friends, is the sign of the heart that understands the grace of God, is your ability to not only feel compassion towards others, but also to celebrate their transformation. In other words, you long for souls 
You long for people to know the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that you have. To receive his grace. There's no miserliness about grace. It's all gift. It's the grace that we saw in Jesus when he's dying on the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That we see in his servant Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as he's being stoned to death. And he says, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. This is the heart that's captured by grace. Friends, it is much easier to see the flaws of religious institutions and indeed of certain religious people that you've encountered in your life than it is to see the flaws that can be nurtured in your own heart. This thing is a subtle and slippery thing. You ever seen those men who hunt for the great constrictors, snakes in the, the Florida wetlands? Now they'll feel one with a foot in the marshes and then they'll grab hold of the thing and take hold of it and pull it, pull it, pull it until they get hold of the head. I mean, they, they have to be natural born psychopaths to do a job like that. But this is what sin is like. It's like a slippery thing under the, lurking under the waters of your heart. This religious spirit. This pride, this grumbling, this judgment. It's easy to see in others. It's so hard to discern in your own spirit. So we come back to the cross. Come back to the story of our Savior nailed to that rugged, wooden place of execution. And as we contemplate the grace and the love of God in his blood shed, we nurture humility instead of a pride, a gratitude instead of a grumbling, a compassion and love instead of a judgment. And in this way, we become more like the Savior who's purchased us with his own blood. Let's bow our heads and pray. Oh, Lord. I pray you'll spare us from the self-delusion of thinking that we're okay if we're not. I pray, Father, that you'll bring the spotlight even now through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit upon the ways in which we might be nurturing these attitudes ourselves, Lord, and suffer from the same spiritual sickness that this older brother suffered with. Expose it, Lord, not that we be brought to shame, but so that we can be brought to the sweetness of repentance and of knowing once more the delight of the gospel, of being the redeemed, of being saved. Enable, Lord, to carry this gospel to others in a liberal way, a generous way. Able to exercise compassion on a broken world and towards brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we've been upset I want to pray Father my prayer is this that grace would not just be the name of our church but we would be the spirit in which we worship and love you would be the dominant understanding of what it is 
you've done for us so that everyone would feel welcome in this place and in our hearts and in our homes. That we be reconciled to one another. That no anger and judgment and bitterness would creep into this this family. That we be more like the father than the older brother. And I pray it in the name of your son, our Savior. Amen.